taking your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. The reading will begin at verse 27. Let us pray. Most gracious God, as we open your book and we prepare to hear the word read publicly and preached, we ask again, for we are needy again, we do ask that your spirit would attend to our hearing of the words of our master Jesus Christ, that we would recognize his voice and his authority therein. Pray that your spirit would be a good plowman among our hearts, breaking up fallow ground, making a good soil to receive the good seed of your word. We ask, O Lord, that it would take root in us so that we would be firm, constant, sturdy, fruitful stalks, fruitful heads of grain gathered up by you to your praise and your glory in righteousness, holiness, and cheerful fear of you, O Lord, to your praise, to your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 9, 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. God's word. In tonight's reading, we hear again, and hopefully better than we have heard previously, that Jesus Christ is overflowing with compassion. If he were a fruit tree, his compassion would be more visible than the leaves and the branches. Matthew wants us to hear this and and hear it well. Matthew is overwhelming us 
with reports of the compassion of Jesus Christ so that we are quite clear what we ourselves are doing with Jesus Christ in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our minds. Matthew wants us to be sure that if we are going to reject Jesus Christ, that we know we are rejecting one who served men with an unrelenting compassion. And if we are going to embrace Jesus Christ by faith as our Savior and follow him and imitate him and please him, we are going to necessarily be filled with more and more of his compassion as we become like him. Matthew's removing the wiggle room on what we are doing with Jesus Christ and who we think he is. So Matthew will not allow us to take hold of a Jesus we can manipulate like soft wax and make into a Lord who is devoid of compassion. Matthew will not allow us to put our hands on Jesus or a Jesus who is far removed from the people or far removed from their miseries or far removed from their daily pains or far removed from their fears or far removed from their sufferings, Matthew will not let us have a Jesus of our imagination. He will not allow us to craft in our own hands a Jesus who is cold, distant, and only filled with utterances and ideas that we like to talk about. We are going to learn tonight that even his teaching comes under a greater heading, his compassion. The real and true Yahweh of ancient Israel made camp among his children, dwelling himself in a tent as they were in tents because of his compassion. But he has now come to dwell in our own flesh, in our own bone, because of this same compassion in Jesus Christ. So tonight, we get to look at the compassion of our Savior in these three vignettes that you just heard me read, three fragments of his public ministry as the divine shepherd, as the messianic servant. In the first vignette, two men who were blind are given their sight. In the second, a man who was mute is given his voice. And in the third, we have a summary statement of his compassion along with a remarkable critique by him of a catastrophic failure of compassion where it should not have failed. And we'll get to that last. So let's look at the first vignette, verses 27 through 31. Somewhere near the village of Capernaum, that's where these, are, these, these things are taking place, somewhere along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, there are two blind men. They somehow learned Jesus was near to where they were. Perhaps the crowd made it known to them, or perhaps family members made it known to them, or perhaps they were just sitting by the road looking for alms, and they heard the voice of Jesus teaching, and they heard the teaching of his voice, and they recognized him by the ministry of the Spirit of God. Whatever it was, these two blind men started following the voice of this man, our Lord Jesus. They started walking after him, keeping close enough to him to be where he is going, 
and they move with him through the streets of Capernaum to his home, which is really Peter's mother-in-law's home. And on the way, these two blind men make a ruckus. Have mercy on us, son of David. They didn't say it just once. They didn't stop saying it. They repeated it over and over. Their cry revealed that as blind men, they knew something about Jesus that many who could see did not know about him. They knew he is rich in mercy and ready to be merciful because he is the son of David. Not just some distant offspring of King David, he is the royal son whom God promised to King David a thousand years earlier in 2 Samuel 7, a son who would sit on David's throne forever. These two blind men know Jesus is the son who was to come, and he has come, to rise to David's throne over Israel. Now, we might understand their ruckus cry a little better by contrasting it with something else. Imagine if they cried out this way, Have justice on me, son of David. What would such a cry as that reveal about their understanding of Jesus and about their understanding of themselves? Well, it would reveal they think they are owed something from the Messiah. They would be saying, have justice on me, O son of David, because they think they are owed something good. But they do not think of Jesus that way, do they? They understand that even in their suffering from blindness, the Messiah does not owe them anything good. All they can do is ask for mercy. And so they do. Beloved, this is a reminder to you, because this day will come upon you with heaviness at some point in your life, should the Lord tarry. In your sufferings, do not parlay with King Jesus on terms of justice, on what you think he owes to you. You don't want what he owes to you. You want what mercy can give. Seek his mercy, even if everybody looks upon your suffering and never speaks of mercy as your greatest need. They are lying to you in their kindly ways. Your greatest need is mercy. Now, to verse 28, we learn our Lord does not heal these two blind men in the street, but inside the house. And by this, he means to keep his healing power discreet from the crowds, because it is not yet his hour to suffer. To heal two men who so boldly confess his true identity is only going to draw attention to him. And it is not a good place for him to be drawing attention to himself because there is opposition to him. And we are going to see this more as we go to vignette number two in a moment. But there is something peculiar about the moment of the healing. Everything suddenly slows down. 
Do you notice what Matthew has done so quickly? He has quickly moved us through the ruckus the two men made while they were in the crowd. He has quickly moved us through the streets to the house. And then Matthew has quickly moved us into the house where Jesus and the two men are now inside together. All that went boom, boom, boom. But now in verse 28 and 29 and 30, everything slows down. This is the marrow. That's why. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Jesus asked them. Why does Jesus slow everything down with this question? Isn't Jesus already persuaded by the desperate cries of these men that they do believe he can do this? Well, this is where we must remember. Jesus is never just a miracle worker. We actually learn that again in the third vignette if we forgot it. He doesn't just do healings. He's proclaiming the gospel and he's teaching in the synagogues. He is never just a miracle worker. He is a teacher, a pastor, a disciple maker, the divine teacher. He strengthens the soul at the same time he heals the body. This is why we pray the way we do for illnesses in our church. Do you believe that I am able to do this? It is a question designed to bring their faith to the forefront. It is not what they had, excuse me, it is not that they themselves, these two blind men, had an unfinished faith or an inauthentic faith before. No, Jesus rather intends to bind them to a holy memory and in doing so, bind the whole church to a holy memory. What memory is that? That it is faith, not need, that saves. That it is faith, not works, that saves. It is faith that gives us the benefits of Jesus Christ. Faith alone in the unseen power and in the compassion of the Son of David is enough to receive from him all that we could ever need from him. Faith alone. He is putting it on the platform for the church. So he does not ask the blind men to prove themselves by narrating their performance and the duties of the law. Nor does Jesus say, I see that your need is great and that you need a great remedy. No, he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? This really teaches pastors and elders what the chief need is of the flock of God, to have their faith strengthened. Oh, how necessary it is. Wasn't it the Lord who says through his apostle John that your faith overcomes the world? He does not ask them anything but, do you believe? Which is another way of basically asking them this, do you have that which you must have for me to do that which only I can do for you? What must they have? A believing heart. Not because a believing heart is the power. Mm -mm. Jesus is the power. There is no power in the believing heart. 
but he gives his power to those who believe he is willing to give it in mercy. Now consider with me for a moment, we're taking longer on this first vignette because it is a bit, well, longer. Consider the piling up of Christ's great compassion in this first vignette. First, because he himself is the light of the world, he gives these blind men their sight. Second, because they cannot see him at first, he touches their eyes to let them know he sees them and is about to heal them. Third, he gives them something more, something they were not even asking for, a holy memory of how weighty a thing it is to have faith in him. They will not forget that by faith they can have all of him for all their needs forever. And very soon, our Lord, of course, is going to be raised up from the grave in their own flesh and blood. And this will be a sign to them that he will raise them on the last day. Now let's go to the second vignette. Now this situation unfolds immediately after the previous one. The needy man in this case is not blind. He is mute, meaning he cannot speak and likely could not hear. The reason he was mute, the text tells us, is because he was possessed by a demon. Now, not everyone who is mute is possessed by a demon, but the reason this man was mute is because he was possessed by a demon. Now, this is not the first man we have met in Matthew's report who is possessed with a devil. We met one in chapter 8, verse 28. And this will not even be the last man we meet who is mute because of a devil. We will meet another one in Matthew chapter 12. What we want to understand, the big picture of vignette number two, about this man, is that he cannot control himself. He is possessed by a devil. The man's inability to control himself is confirmed by what is said in the middle of verse 32. Other people had to bring him to Jesus. He could not bring himself. Does Jesus have compassion for people who cannot control themselves? For people who cannot bring themselves to him? For people possessed by devils? Absolutely he does. This is what we are meant to see so clearly here. The compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ extends to those whom we bring to Jesus, who would never bring themselves, to those who can't even control themselves. You see, there is no way to earn his compassion. You can't even earn it by being able to get yourself to him. There are several reports in the New Testament Gospels of people bringing to Jesus friends and family members who cannot control themselves. Jesus heals them. He exercises demons that he finds in them. What does it mean? It means that Jesus Christ's compassion is not just for those who have enough control of their minds, enough control of their bodies, enough control to be rewarded with compassion. Jesus heals even those who have no control. Why? Because 
the compassion of this king of life, this king of love, is free to all he is pleased to give it to. Let me show you another scene of those without control being brought to Jesus and receiving his compassion. Mark 10, 13, we read these words. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. Those children didn't get themselves there. Now, who do you suppose did not have compassion on those children and tried to shush them away when their parents showed up with them? Any guesses? The disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, still very much undiscipled, (laughs) they are shushing these people away who are carrying these children to Jesus. The next text, the next verse in Mark 10 says, And the disciples rebuked the parents. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. It's the hand of healing, isn't it? Beloved, this is what you are doing when you are praying for somebody. We prayed for Sue tonight. We don't know Sue. We prayed for John tonight. We don't know John. How do we, how do we learn that that is the right thing to do and bring these folks to Jesus who can't even bring themselves? This is the king of compassion. He gives his compassion to whomever he pleases, and he is rich in it and ready. You cannot weary him by bringing names to him, asking them to heal him and exercise demons from them. You cannot wear him out. There are kinds, all kinds of people that we all know in the world who are under the rule of demons. They are not in control of themselves. Do not be like the disciples in this early phase of their training. Do not curl up your nose and snarl and say, I'm not going to talk to you about Jesus until you can control yourself. Talk to Jesus about them because they can't control themselves. Let his compassion reveal to you in this word of God, change the way you pray, the way you minister, the way you speak of him in the world. I want to make an important exegetical observation here. That in these three vignettes, and this is helpful as we come now to the third, in each of these three vignettes, there is something of a revelation about the opposition against Jesus and his compassion. Let me show it to you. See if I can get myself controlled here by my notes. The first vignette, it's in verse 30. When Jesus sternly warned the two blind men to tell no one about it, he is flagging to the reader, flagging to the church, that it is not safe to make Jesus famous too soon because they will come and arrest him and crucify him before his hour. But in the second vignette, look at verse 34. The Pharisees see the mute man exercised of his demons, 
And they say, well, um, well, we see that he can talk now. Well, we got it. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons' power. Okay, you know Jesus handles that later with a wonderful uh, correction to their thinking. But the opposition is coming out now, right? The Pharisees are now opposed to this wonderful king of compassion. And then it just goes full scale, full statement when we get to verse 36, that the crowds on whom he had compassion, who are harassed and helpless, are like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. Who are the shepherds of Israel? The elders of Israel. They have abandoned their work. We're going to come to that again in a moment because that's really in the third vignette. So the last vignette is 35 through 38. And here Matthew gives us a summary, a summary statement of our Lord's ministry. He says Jesus was busy doing three main activities, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing diseases and afflictions. But then in verse 36, Matthew moves from his summary of our Lord's external works to a summary of our Lord's internal condition of soul. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this statement of 36 is very important for two reasons. First, it is Matthew's way of telling the church that everything Jesus did was from a heart of compassion. Not just his healings, but also his teaching. Not just his teaching, but also his proclaiming of the gospel. Jesus ministered to the whole man, both man's temporal needs and his eternal needs. Why? Because he had compassion for them. Now, that Greek word for compassion is a doozy. I won't pronounce it. Well, I'll pronounce it. Splankna. But it literally means to have your bowels yearn for somebody's need. That Greek word is so vivid, John Gill came up with a beautiful way to explain it and its use in verse 36. He said, quote of our Savior, his bowels yearned for them. He was touched with a feeling of their infirmities as the merciful high priest, the good shepherd and faithful prophet, being heartily concerned for the souls of men, their comfort here and everlasting happiness hereafter. The second reason verse 36 is important is what our Lord says in the second half of that verse. The crowds were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now that statement right there, as I alluded to, is a strong criticism of the religious leadership in Israel. It's more than a criticism. It's a denunciation. It's a condemnation of religious leadership in Israel. The phrase, like sheep without a shepherd, is found in several Old Testament passages in a slightly adjusted expression. Let me give you a few of them. In the dark days of Jeremiah, we read this from the prophet, chapter 50, verse 6. My people have been lost sheep. 
Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. That's just another description of the great failure of the shepherds of Israel, abandoning their flock, their fold. Isaiah 56, 9 is even more vivid. The Lord comes against the religious leadership of his ancient church with these words. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The religious leadership of Israel was consumed with their own needs and their own pleasures. And they left the sheep without shepherds. Ezekiel 34, one more. You do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. When the Lord says in verse 37 and 38 that we must pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, he doesn't call the church of that day to pray for laborers because there were no laborers. There were men who thought of themselves as the religious shepherds of Israel. They were all over Jerusalem. But they had no compassion for the Lord's flock. They were filled with lust for their own leisure, for their own entertainment, for their own relaxation. Their life was constantly being reinvested into themselves. Though they had the title shepherd, the Lord Jesus, the King of Compassion, recognized them as no laborers at all for the harvest of souls that he had come to gather. So these references to the opposition in these three vignettes, we have seen them go from quiet and oblique in the first instance, verse 30, to loud and clear in the second instance, and then down in this last one, sheep without a shepherd. That is a titanic and epic criticism of the opposition. But our Lord Jesus, this is his compassion. He's the king of compassion. In the midst of all this opposition to the way he is doing ministry, he doesn't stop doing it. His compassion is so great it cannot be defeated by the disapproval of the leaders of Israel. They misunderstand him. They malign him. They tell him that he is crazy, yet his compassion does not abate. And beloved, those are the kind of laborers that he's asking us all to pray for. Those who will not be pushed off their duty line by criticism. Those who will not 
stop and dry up their compassion because people misunderstand. Those who continue in the footsteps of the compassionate king. Now, one last thought. The wonderful thing about verse 38 is that it says, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray to who? The Lord of the harvest. To do what? To send out laborers into his harvest. To do what kind of labor? The labor of compassion. The compassion of proclaiming the gospel to those dead in sin. The compassion of teaching to those with darkened minds. The compassion of healing the body. Doing good works. But pray to who? The Lord of the harvest? He has already sent himself. The Lord of the harvest, the owner of it all, he is already doing the labor himself. He has not waited to delegate it to others alone. He has come first because he is the king and head of compassion. This is the height of his compassion that the Lord of the harvest has not just stood up on a high and heavenly throne and said, ask for me of good things. He has actually come down. Him who was in the form of God took on the form of a servant to show us his eternal compassion. Let us pray and then go to the supper. Our gracious God, we thank you for the lessons that you have set on our heart and mind about the compassion of our dear Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be like him. We don't want to be like ourselves. We don't want to be what we once were, disinterested in the needs of men. If they fell in front of us, they get our attention. But Lord, we were always on the move, always thinking of ourselves, always reinvesting into our own lives. Oh Lord, we want to be like him, for we have received his compassion. He has come when, before we even prayed for him to come. When we were looking the other way, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he came. What great compassion for the dead to come and give us his life. Father, we pray that we would love him, that we would recognize in him the true king of compassion, that he is unmatched, in this calling and duty, and that it is our great privilege to be set free from the bondage of the devil ourselves, to become like him. We ask for this grace to increase and abound. In Jesus' name, amen.